welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. This week is the turn of Dee Kafari, a world-renowned ocean racer who has twice competed in the ocean race, once as skipper in the last edition with Turn the Tide on Plastic. She sat down with me and gave me a pretty candid look into what the pressures were like as a skipper and a leader of such an inexperienced crew relative to the others, but also what it meant to her to be out there pushing the boundaries of what people think is capable in sport. There are athletes famous worldwide in the sport of sailing, and there are others whose achievements are grand enough to reach beyond the sport. Stories that anyone can acknowledge as impressive. Dee Kafari has one of those stories. She has six laps of the planet to her name, three of them non-stop, two of them solo, covering both an eastward and westward navigation. Now, this has seen her being awarded with an MBE, uh, gained an honorary commander rank in the British Royal Navy and given her a platform to support numerous sailing charities and projects. So, Dee, it's an honour to talk to you. Thank you very much. I want to start with something because, you know, our paths have crossed a little bit. But when you're looking at somebody's CV that is as, as, like I say, as grand as yours, how should we consider you? Are you an amazing person or are you an ordinary person who just does amazing things? Oh, uh, just having the word amazing associated with my name is quite nice. After that introduction, I feel on cloud nine. <laughs> um, I, I consider myself pretty ordinary and still learning every day. So I guess I'm an ordinary person that's been very lucky to do amazing things. Because I, I think in sport as well, we hear a lot about people who have, from the age of six, they were already on the gymnastic bars. From the age of four, they could already do a backflip on a snowboard. Um, whereas for you, obviously, you know, you, you came into the sport, um, I mean, at 18, I think you were sort of getting a bit serious, you know. But you you would consider yourself an athlete, you would consider yourself somebody who, who does this professionally. Um, do you see a huge gulf between where you are now and, and sort of younger you as in, you know, could, can you look back and see the similarities or have you changed beyond recognition? Uh, I would consider that I've changed massively and I would consider myself more of an athlete now than I was then. I, I was at university, I was sport mad. I grew up being a dance mad person, you know, doing all my, dance lessons, went to university, did a sports science degree, so did more and more sport. And it was only at university that I then kind of tried sailing for the first time. And it really bit me. But I'm not that traditional sailor that comes from growing up in all the range of dinghies and going through the ranks that way. So I, I do buck the system in that respect. And when I did a career change in 2000, after being a teacher, school teacher for five years, I then crammed an awful lot in in a short space of time and achieved quite a lot. And now I'm probably trained better as an athlete. And, you know, I consider myself the professional athlete now um, and always consider myself learning and uh, can learn from other people. But it's, yeah, it's it's not a normal route into the sport. It's not a, a traditional route. And it's sometimes kind of overlooked or kind of dismissed by people. But actually, I'm... I'm somebody that sets an example that you don't have to know what you're doing at age four, age six, age 16, age 20. You can change careers. It is OK. I mean, I'm glad you said that 
because you've got to be proud of that, right? I mean, when you line up on, I mean, let's take the ocean race, for example, you line against, up against all these skippers, crews. They've been competing since the age of four. You haven't, but there you are on the start line with them. Yeah, but I, I struggle also because I have this almost like an imposter syndrome. So my worst day on the ocean race, every single stopover without fail, is that terrible day where you get the skippers meeting and the press conference on the same day. And I have to have that inner dialogue with myself before I walk through that door to sit down at the skippers meeting because I just think I shouldn't be there. They don't respect me. They don't. I wouldn't have anything to contribute. They wouldn't listen to me anyway. And I have all these self-doubts. And then I have to walk out and see my crew and be that confident leader that's, you know, got it all under control. And then you sit in a press conference and it becomes a little bit repetitive sometimes where the podium positions are asked about strategy and tactics. Um, you know, the 11th hour racing team would be asked about the environment. And as the female skipper, I'd be asked about women in sailing. And it's it was so formulaic. You were just like, oh, here we go. And And I found it quite a hard day and then when I got on sailing I was like yeah no I actually can do this but you do start to doubt yourself and you start to think is everything I've achieved real you know do people just think I've made it up do people think I was just lucky or helped along but then you get you know some recent events and you go and prove to yourself that you can do it and you go yeah no I am good at this. What was the difference having that doubt in your mind and I'm sure everybody does to some degree what was the difference having that doubt in your mind when you're doing your solo projects as compared with, okay, I've got to lead people and I need to, to be that pillar of confidence. I think when you're doing your solo projects, you know, there's only you. So you, you haven't got that fear of letting people down. You kind of know your level of resilience and I'm so stubborn that I'm not going to let it beat me anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. And if people say I can't, then I will prove to them that I will. And I've been really fortunate to be in a lot of positions. And sometimes I have to fall back on that, actually. You know, yes, I'm sat around the table with legends and I would love to have been one of those females on their boats learning from them. But actually, they hadn't sailed around the world on their own. None of those skippers that had sat around that table in the last edition of the race. And, you know, I have to remind myself that. And they definitely haven't done it backwards. You know, I mean, who has? Not many of us. So, you know, there is that little reminder. But for me, with the with a crew when they're looking, they want to see confidence and assertiveness and control and they draw strength from your strength. And it's it's about, you know, playing the game and getting the best out of the people. I had some phenomenal sailors in my crew and I wanted them to shine. You know, they were there for their strength and it wasn't about me telling them what to do. I love the quote from Steve Jobs where he says, you know, don't employ the best and then tell them what to do. Employ the best and let them go and do their job. And that's what I wanted them to do, you know, just nurture them and encourage them in like the Southern Ocean or the arenas that they weren't um, confident with or didn't have experience of. Well, it's interesting because because I, I want, you know, I'm, I might kind of fall foul of this, but I do want to ask you about women in sport because I I didn't feel the need to mention in, in the introduction and, and everything that... Um, being a female, there is also, and the first female, and this. I mean, your accomplishments speak for themselves. So I am going to ask you a little bit about, about women in sport because um, we've been asking viewers if they want to submit the questions. And a lot of people have been um, waiting to hear your wise words about what the race has done and what they should be doing. And I know that you're very passionate about that one. But for the meantime, let's just stick to this idea about um, imposter syndrome. 
because it must have taken a bit of confidence. I mean, let, let's go back again. You came into the sport a bit late. And then when you're doing these solo uh, round the worlds, I mean, you, you get involved with the global challenge. You do this career change. You do this, right, I'm going to put down the, the blackboard marker. I'm going to go and get fully qualified. Was there a doubt when you did that? I mean, that's, it's a full shift of gears. It is, but it was it was exciting. I had the right job too soon. I loved my job as a teacher, but I still wanted to travel and have adventure and I wasn't fulfilled staying in that role. So I went and found my adventure and then a whole world of sailing opened up to me that I never even knew existed. So when you see, um, you know, the Clipper Race or the Global Challenge as well back then, you know, this was, you know, an opportunity I, I didn't even know was there. And I originally did a trial with Clipper Race. And so Robin Knox Johnson said to me, don't be that person that stands in the pub saying, oh, I could have done this, but you <laughs> didn't. And that's really stuck with me. Um, as it was, I didn't do his race, but I did Che's race, the Global Challenge. But we did a round Britain and Ireland race um, as a precursor to the round the world. And at the end of that, I remember being in floods of tears thinking, I can't manage these people. And it was one of the other skippers that were just like, well, of course you can. If you can't do it, no one can. And you just need that kind of, a, you know, that kind of structure to support you a little bit because it is a man management exercise. It, you know, it evolves as you go on and you kind of, you lose that inability to, you know, find your feet, find that position of how you are as a leader. You realize very quickly that you're not there to be everyone's friend. You've got to make the difficult decisions. And as a leader, it's a pretty lonely place at the top. That's why you're in that role because not everybody wants it and once you understand how that role fits in then you can kind of build your team and get the best from them as well but that was a ma massive lesson and I think that was a really good foundation for what I've then gone on and done since one understanding myself but two then understanding that interaction of developing a team and a team of people to perform. What do you subscribe to in terms of motivation for that team that you might be building? I mean, obviously in something like the Global Challenge, you're talking about people who, um, you know, aren't, aren't sailors in some degree. You know, they're, they're, they've signed up to that adventure. You've got to carve them into people that, that you can take around the world. Turn the tide on plastic as well. You, you were taking a young team, relatively inexperienced. I mean, certainly compared to some of the other boats. Do you subscribe to a... Um, hard facts here it is this is what you're doing wrong or do you try and be a bit more gentle how do you strike the balance um i'm i'm pretty soft really i reckon <laughs> um, i go anything for the easy life um but i think it's about empowering them so yeah you know you're going to make mistakes but own them and learn from them so we can move on and it's about having ownership and responsibility because then people have buy-in they feel valued and they feel like they're contributing they don't want to be told what to do they're not there to be at school anymore but they want to be enabled to do the best job they can. And, you know, they weren't there because, you know, they had the right color hair, they were there for their skills. And it was just reminding them that they had those skills sometimes because everybody goes through little waves of confidence and, you know, they have bad days and good days. And it's just having that empathy to recognize those traits in people and bring out the best and give them that support that, you know, I've recognized that I've needed at times as well. Is, is that, is it something like that, that, led you to go, well, I wonder whether I could do this on my own. I mean, you know, I've taken a crew around here. 
do I have it in me? Was it was it a drive to do that, or was it just oh that that sounds cool? Well, no. By that stage, I decided it'd be easier without the seventeen people on board. <laughs> um, it was literally to Che Blythe was like, you know, it's only a matter of time before a woman should follow in my footsteps. You know, heaven forbid a woman would do it. And uh, it planted the seed, and that leg was um, Cape Town to Boston, seven thousand miles on the Global Challenge. We cross our outgoing track, so geographically they've circumnavigated the globe. They've all become their own experts by then because they've survived the Southern Ocean. So every, every decision is questioned and it's just really hard work. And you get to that point where you think, yeah, it might be easier without the 17 people on board. And then literally it evolved and three months later, literally three months after we finished that race, I was back on the same boat without those 17 people on board. And I'd never even lived on my own, let alone sailed on my own. So, And Che's parting words to me were, don't cry about it. It's been done before. So I was like, oh, okay. And off I went and burst into tears. Oh, of course. Own. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in three months, there must have been an awful lot that you were doing to the boat in terms of to get it ready. I mean, you know, furling this, asymmetric sails. What were you trying to do with yourself? Because like you say, never even lived on your own. Just being so, you know, just being on your own is quite a challenge with all the physical and the fear and everything else. What did you do? Well, You'd think there was a lot of changes to the boat. There weren't that many changes, bizarrely. <laughs> yes, we did put some furling sails on, um, but they still had to change the big jib to the little jib. And I was desperately looking for the other six people that would line up on the bow to help me do that sail change at the time. Um, making the decisions of what changes to do, you know, I trusted the boat. I'd just sail around the world in the boat, so I knew that was okay. And I think I was so thrown into three months' time you're going off around the world you know, sitting writing food lists with somebody, learning to climb the mast on my own, you know, mm. little things, you know, going through my medical kit, realizing that if I had broken my arm, how was I going to treat my arm? And where am I going to put this medical kit so I could get to it? And all the things that I hadn't even contemplated that suddenly it was time to go and you go, oh, okay then. And so it was, I don't think I really gave it much thought in all honesty, and it was only when I left and I was like, oh, I've actually got to spend 24 hours a day with myself for God knows how long. Um, and yeah, that it kind of then hit me like a bolt between the eyes of what I'd actually taken on. I think I remember you saying something about when you had completed it. Um, I think you said this to me at one point. You found yourself just talking to everybody and anybody when you, you know, it's like, oh, there's someone to talk to. Well, you know, I, I'm quite happy to chat and I am quite a sociable person. So I'm not your average solo sailor. I'm not an introvert. And when you haven't had anybody to interact with for six months, I was on my own for 178 days. I saw a helicopter at New Zealand and I saw a helicopter at um, Cape of Good Hope. And that was my two interactions on the VHF waving at somebody actually physically hanging out of a helicopter. And then it was the finish line. Um, and I'd had a phone call the day before the finish from Moose, from Mike Sanderson, because the, the ocean race was coming in to that finish that year. And it was the terrible leg where we'd, they'd lost Hans Horowitz. A movie star had, had had to abandon ship. And I was basically put on standby because I'm heading towards there with a massive boat that's empty. And I was just like, I've just spent six months going around the world. Please let me cross the finish line before I have to go and do anything. And I was like, and tell them I've got no food left, so they have to bring some food, you know, thinking I was going to have to rescue this crew. And um, Mike Sanderson was just like, you know, you're heading to the finish line. I've just, he rang me 
uh, on the boat. I've just um, told my crew what you've done and they think you're nuts. You know, we're all heading into the uh, English Channel in 50 knots of breeze. And he's just like, I've just told them what you've done and I think it's great. And I had an invitation then to do the import race with ABN AMRO at the stopover in Portsmouth when they got in. So it was like a really nice um, acknowledgement. He was the first person to kind of congratulate me on what I was about to finish. And the next day, I, you know, I crossed the line and the warship was there and stuff. It was cool. Did the, that um, opportunity to quite rightly sort of polish your ego a little bit, did that give you a little bit of a little bit of bite to try and kind of, right, what's next? You know, I imagine off the, you know, off the energy of that, you're sort of, right, I'm hungry for more. Well, it was halfway round. I just realised I didn't even answer your last question, did I, about talking to people. I got so <laughs> excited. But um, so when I finished, the guys jumped on board. There were four of them that jumped on board and they were a bit nervous. You know, what's she going to be like? She's been on her own for six months. And literally <laughs> they took a watch system to listen to me. They were like, can you please be quiet? My ears are bleeding. And I literally spoke to them 24 hours a day because I didn't need to sleep by then. They took a watch system and I literally took them through day by day the last 178 days of all my activities, all the things I fix and look at what's broken, look what I did here. And they just could not believe it. And I didn't stop. And it was probably quite good because I had a, I finished on the Thursday and I had to officially arrive on the Sunday with Princess Anne. So I had a couple of days to kind of get that out of my system. So I arrived relatively normal to the general public. It was just those poor guys that jumped on the boat initially that just could not believe what bombarded them but back to the recent question was in the southern ocean i was trying to tack the boat and couldn't tack the boat you know that's not heard of the waves were massive the wind was massive i couldn't get it through i've got 18 mil sheets on my sails because this is the tank i'm driving and i actually Normally, you struggle to jibe and you chicken jibe by tacking the boat. Here I was wanting to tack the boat, couldn't, and actually bore away and jibed around and came back on the other tack. And at that moment, I bore away and the boat went flat for like the first time in months. And I was like, ah, it all went quiet. The boat even accelerated, even 42 tons of steel accelerated. And I jibed the boat and enjoyed it just a little bit longer. And then I was like, oh, okay, then I best go back the right way. Yeah, so <laughs> I up on the wind, crashed into the Southern Ocean and carried on. And I went, at that moment then, I was like, I'm going the other way next time. Right. Okay. So that leads me to a question then, because um, I've never really known what the right way to say it is. I imagine you get a little bit annoyed when people say the wrong way or, you, you know what I mean? Like, it's a perfectly legitimate way. It just tends to be harder the most of you wimps. I mean, is it, you know, does it annoy you when people make that mistake? Well, I got introduced to a school talk as the lady that had gone the wrong way around the world. First <laughs> question from a kid. Didn't anybody tell you you were going the wrong way? And I was like, oh, bless them. Because it does sound ridiculous. So you do have to explain. And most people don't understand the difference. But when you explain that if you were to stop and do nothing, you would actually go backwards mm. because everything is working against you. They start to understand. And then when you say that you sail three times the distance because you're literally zigzagging your way forwards, generally sailing in the wrong direction most of the time, which is quite demoralizing. And in contrast, when you get down the bottom of the Atlantic and hang a left, you can basically you know, surf on and enjoy yourself and everything helps you. So when you kind of explain it, then people start to understand. And then the question then is just why? Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing you haven't got, you've probably got your standard answer that you roll out for that one, but I'm assuming it's fairly 
difficult to articulate the real reason. Well, no, I, well, yeah. I mean, there's very few firsts in the world left, and mm. this was an opportunity for me to have one and grab. And if four, four guys can do it, why can't I do it? So I did it. Going, as you say, not not the wrong way, but going against the sort of convention, shall we say. I'm just thinking storms-wise, for, for anybody that's been out there on their little boat, their little dinghy, they'll be thinking about, oh, I've got to drop my mainsail or I've got to stop or we've got an issue. You go head to wind. That's, that, that's a safe place to be. But when you're in the Southern Ocean and the storms are sort of coming towards you, I'm assuming that you're sort of thinking, oh, can I not run away from it? I've got to go into this thing. I mean, is, am I right in thinking that there's that element on it as well, that you're, yeah, you, you can't hide. Well, there's nowhere to hide in the Southern Ocean as well. And you're right, they just continuously come. And the year I went, it was particularly bad. It was secondary low after secondary low. And of course, you're wanting to be in the favourable sector all the time. So you end up getting further and further south. And you're like, please, can I come north again? Please let me tack long enough to come back up. Um, but it is what it is. And actually, you realise, you know, you trust the boat and you trust yourself and then everything becomes relative to the one before. It's not as bad as last time. This is OK. And I remember one, I went, well, it's one of my early ones. So I learned from my mistakes in my enthusiasm of being in the south. I went like straight through the middle of the depression. So, of course, I went through the really windy stuff and it came and it got lighter and lighter. And I was shaking reefs out and changing sails and getting all excited. Obviously, like floated around in the middle for a short while and then went out the other side and literally my enjoyment of shaking all the reefs out and changing all the sails was very short-lived because I had to put it all back in again. <laughs> but that whole first experience of literally going through the centre of a depression was like, oh yeah, now I know it's not worth it. Just enjoy it while you can and uh, be ready for it to hit you again. Um, a really good question that I got sent, I thought, was um, related to the ocean race and related to you know the achievement that we've just been talking about going the quote-unquote wrong way. Upwind through the Southern Ocean. And somebody was asking that, obviously with Team SCA, um, and I think if memory serves me, I don't actually believe you were on the leg with Team SCA going upwind through the Bay of Biscay, the one that you know your team won. However, very few people have gone through the Southern Ocean upwind, as you say. Would it play to your advantage, this person was wondering, if the route went, okay, you've got to get down to the bottom, then upwind, you got to go the the other the other loop. Would that be a challenge that you would think, yeah, this this is more my game, or are you just done with it? No, I think there's a reason why everyone goes with what's considered the right way around the world. It's <laughs> so much more enjoyable and a lot more fun, a lot quicker, and more people enjoy it with you. Funnily enough, um, I wasn't on SCA when they did that big upwind session into Lorient, their triumphant leg, which is kind of funny, really. That. Um, I had a bit of a reputation that we do quite well when the boat goes upwind because <laughs> I'm quite <laughs> practiced at it. And, and I do actually make an effort, even on Turn the Tidal Plastic, whenever it was upwind, you know, to encourage the crew to enjoy these conditions. And they all just go, oh, my God, you're crazy. And I do have that reputation, obviously. But, um, yeah, no, I don't need to do it again, thankfully. Oh. And what was it like in terms of, I'm thinking about your, you know, your, your, your first sort of solo around the world, but also with everything else you've done, um, because you've got into this, shall we say a little bit late, let, not quite, but let, let's just sort of summarize it this way, later than some, one of the things that's obviously hit you relatively hard has been a bit of a media spotlight. What's it like when you finish a 
race, obviously your around the world challenge, it's all smiles, it's all congratulations. But in terms of a performance point of view, um, what's it like also being a leader from a crew and then having a microphone put in your face and having to sort of, I have to be the right person for my crew and also the right person in front of the camera? It's That's the hard one. And sometimes you relish it and you look forward to it. And sometimes it's just, you know, it's coming and you can't avoid it. Like you can't go and hide. Hmm. Uh, but you, you've got to find the right words because actually what you say isn't just to the media or for you. It's actually on behalf of your crew or your team or your sponsor. And uh, Turn the Tide on Plastic tested me a lot on that because we were always so close but not quite. And hmm. I was getting so frustrated because I felt the guys deserved it. And I think um, New Zealand was the worst one for that. I just wanted to burst into tears, obviously had to hold it together. And I literally turned around and there was nobody on deck behind me. All the crew had just gone. And, you know, we'd had such a good leg and then literally lost it at the end coming into the harbour. Did the interview. I can't even remember what I said, but like nothing useful. Um, And then like got everybody off. And then literally I saw Harry, my boyfriend, and I was just like, and just have my little cry quietly. And then, of course, you have to do that pick stuff up because everybody's there to see you and you've got to do the whole welcome thing. So it can be really tough, but that's where you have to um, have the empathy and, you know, kind of less is more sometimes. I, I remember that one. For anybody that, that, that isn't too familiar, this is the one, like you say, coming in New Zealand, I think leg six, and you guys were, you know, top three. It was Axo, you, Scallywag. Mafre and Dong Fong, 150 miles back. And then they just ride this breeze right the way in. And I think um, if I'm right in saying the top five boats and you finished fifth in the end, which was pretty agonising for, for all your fans, the top five boats finished within half an hour of each other and you just got pipped with, with Dong Fong Race Team. And I remember on that dock um, that Charles Cordrelia, you know, your competitor, someone who just pipped you, actually said, oh, yeah, pretty gutted for Turn the Tide on Plastic. They deserved a spot on the podium. Sorry for Turn the Tide because they did a fantastic race. And I think they deserve uh, the third place, but uh, that's silly. The press, I'm sure, can be fairly blunt in the way that uh, um, we talk to each other, but skippers in that scenario? I mean, did you? You know, you had your little cry, you get yourself together. Do you get any sort of, you know, pats on the back from other teams? I think there was, I mean, you you kind of don't see it sometimes, but I was told that Charles had made that comment and that to me meant so much. And he's unlikely to say it to my face, but the fact that people were telling me, and there was a lot of acknowledgement, you know, the eyes, the look, the hand on the shoulder. And of course you're like, don't be too nice, I'll cry again. <laughs> But, you know, because people had seen us sail well and um, what I was frustrated at was the results weren't showing how good we were sailing. But, you know, people were people were seeing it. But, yeah, it was I was frustrated. But there was some really nice kind of gestures or comments made. And I was told that Charles had made that comment, which meant the world to me. How did um, things change in terms of you being perceived, like you say, yourself having a little bit of imposter syndrome? Um, there was obviously a lot of eyes on you being the only female skipper in this edition of the race. Obviously, Sam Davies with, with yourself with Team SCA before. Um, how did the skippers behave to you 
at the beginning of that, you know, that first bit in Alicante, everyone sort of gathered together. Did it change throughout the race? I don't really think so, but I think I'm quite thick-skinned in respect of generally your your peers are quite supportive of what you do. We're all out there doing the same thing. And I think because I, you know, when you come from the Vendée Globe where you're all doing the same thing on your own and there's quite a lot of support, you know, you're there for a reason. It, they don't look at you as if to say, what are you doing here? <laughs> but they just naturally have, you know, some of them have known each other a lot longer, so they have a natural rapport and you know, I'm my own worst enemy. If I was to say to the skippers, oh, you know, I felt like this every skipper's briefing, they would have been like, why, really? They have no idea that the atmosphere was being created. And of course, I'm making it worse in my own head. So I'm my own worst enemy sometimes. Uh, and I, that's why you just have a quiet word with yourself and get on with it. But um, generally, you know, everyone's, everyone's finding it tough, but enjoying it. And we're all in the same position. So there's a lot of respect amongst um, the peers that are there, you know, skippers and crew, I think. Did it give you a perspective looking back at Team SCA with Sam Davies? Because I was doing one of these interviews with uh, Libby Greenhow and she said something that may or may not be true. I don't want to, you know, Sam can come on and, and, and tell me I'm wrong. But she was saying that Sam initially was thinking about the navigator role with Team SCA, maybe, you know, anecdotally right at the very beginning and there she is being the skipper and from a total outsider spectator point of view I did find myself wondering once or twice whether she enjoyed some of the stresses and strains which you've alluded to that come along with being that leader looking back at at someone like Sam who um, bridged a bigger gap in terms of female skippers um, what, what was your sort of take on on what she had to sort of smash through maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough position to be in and she's not naturally one to push herself forwards in that respect either. You know, she just quietly gets on with stuff and is very efficient and good at it. Also, don't forget that Team SEA was a group of phenomenally phenomenal individual sailors all coming together. And it took us a while to find our feet and our roles within the team. And, um, you know, it was frustrating for a long time and I, you know, it's tiring and she is lonely at the top, as I've implied before, you know, because you don't have that same relationship because ultimately the buck is going to stop with you. And that's why there's a leader, because when it all does hit the fan, someone's got to make the tough calls. So, you know, it is a lonely place and I think that's quite hard sometimes. What about for the people that um, all of us leave on the shore. I mean, you've mentioned um, Harry, your partner. Um, you've been doing this a while. Um, he must be, um, yeah, I mean, he, he's doing a pretty good job sort of supporting you in that, I, I, I guess. I mean, how much in the sailing community, in the offshore community, is that sort of discussed and acknowledged between the sailors? Um, I don't think it is so much. I mean, Harry, poor suffering. He's done six <laughs> round the worlds now and he's he's lasting well. Um, and he does get to that point of like, God, you're still home, isn't it? Time you went somewhere. So we're kind of used to that balance. Um, and he he can read me like a book and read between the lines quite often as well. And read the eyes and the smile when they don't match sometimes when it's that media interview when you don't want to do it. So it is quite funny. But, uh, you know, everyone's the same. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people, crew and skippers, leaving husbands, wives, children mm. behind. And it's an emotional tear. We don't really have that because I think we're quite practised at it now that it's like, okay, I'll see you later. Are you going to be there kind of thing? And it's, 
you know, he, there's such good tracking and such good coverage now. Like, you can't do anything without everybody knowing about it anyway. So um, I think it's much easier than it ever used to be. You just triggered a memory mind because you, you just said, you know, we're leaving children. And of course, I'm remembering back at Turn the Tide on Plastic, leg two, Nico Lundvin, your navigator. And of course, talk about the sacrifices of everybody in that family. His uh, daughter, second daughter, was born while he was on the boat. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge sacrifice. And it was quite funny because obviously we had quite a young crew. There's generally there wasn't a whole kind of family departure type process to go through. And there was Nico being a new dad um, remotely. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's an absolute star. More to the point, his wife is an absolute star for saying, yes, he can go and doing that on his own, on her own. I, I I enjoyed, I remember seeing it at the time and he was trying to find a um, a middle name for his daughter based on one of the islands that were close by, which I, I think is quite a nice sort of memento. Um, talking about Turn the Tide on Plastic then, with the, the young team, did you, um, did you, was it your decision to say, I could make this easy and I could pull in some... Uh, people with a lot of experience or I could do again something that isn't the easiest way to do it maybe I've got a reputation for doing <laughs> the hard way, but all the challenges fell on my shoulders and actually I took them on because the other thing was actually no one else could do that no or no one else would probably be prepared to do that yeah. and it, you can buy in the people we didn't have the budget to do that but that wasn't the point of the exercise either and, you know, it was a case of, well, you're a female and you want to put your money where your mouth is. You've been talking about, you know, opportunities. So make it 50-50. Oh, make sure it's young. Oh, can we have the United Nations on board? And you're just like, oh, gosh, oh, gosh. But actually, when it all came together, it was one of the most rewarding projects I've done. And ha by pushing yourself into that environment where, you know, you kind of feel like, what else are they going to throw at me? <laughs> And when you come out the other side, you know, I've met an amazing group of people. We still keep in touch. We had a really good trip round, and, you know, I really enjoyed it. Did you, um, I mean, I keep, I keep in my mind going back to that beginning in Alicante where you were saying you've got this little imposter syndrome. You've taken on this bit of a challenge with the team. And I'm sure that there's immense pride that you feel now with all the decisions that you made as a team and the development. And I, and I want to touch on that, but one of the things I do want to get onto, you talked about that um, first Skipper's press conference. What about on that first start line, that first sort of moment? Because one of the questions that I've always wondered with the Skippers is, you watch that first import race and you guys, and I mean, Sunhunkai <laughs> Scallywag, that in the, 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 at the departure leg, you, you guys are nip and tuck fighting for boat lengths. And we'll come to that moment in just a minute. But the question I wanted to Big ask is... What you're going to come up with? Well, the spectator fleet. Um, <gasps> yeah. Uh, the Looking back on it now, with all the incredible close finishes that we saw throughout the whole fleet, um, it makes sense that on the first departure, you should be fighting for those boat lengths. But at the time, did it feel like, why are we risking this? Let's just get into the offshore bit and then we'll, we'll do our navigation and see. No, do you know what? You line up for the start and the horns are out. You're you're racing <laughs> and we're all naturally competitive. That's why we choose to do it. And with the boats all being identical, mm. 
the differences are so, so minute that it is the little bits that are going to count. And that counts right from the gun. Even in the pre-start, it feels like. And, you know, you're fueled by adrenaline as well. But, yeah, you're not going to give an inch. And also, I felt a little bit that if I was prepared to give an inch, you know, the boys wanted to bully me. And I needed to let them know that I wasn't there to be bullied. Okay. Because there's there's one character in particular, David Witt, larger than life. Um, and he, I mean, that manoeuvre that, that you guys got involved with at the um, start in Alicante where you missed that spectator by half a metre. And there's a wonderful clip of um, shot from the OBR on board. And I believe it cuts just, just after the cut that was put out publicly, you... Describe your emotions at the time with some language that obviously had to be snipped at the end. Um, but what's bizarre about that, I remember, was that you and Witty went on to, I think, have a really strong mutual respect, kind of looking out for each other. Yeah, I mean, we were kind of the underdogs of the fleet a little bit, and we'd come in late. We'd done a lot of our training together, if you think the medical courses, the sea survival courses. Our crews had been together quite a lot, and so we were naturally kind of... a affiliated and then at the start we were on top of each other I mean I literally could not believe he was taking me where he was taking me and I had no other options but to go with him and I was just like you you're crazy you're crazy but actually what was ahead of us all closed up with spectator boats and it was just like we didn't have a lot of choice so I think it you know it kind of showed a few things there was a choice email to race management as well on that of um that isn't the safest way to start a race but also our finishes were super close as well. We ended up sailing side by side for quite a lot of the time. So you do naturally kind of get drawn to another boat by association. And um, we did end up being good friends. You do, it's a very unique environment that you're in. You you experience this thing that, you know, all the sailors are together. And so you share this experience that brings you closer. But then, you know, you only need a few incidences like that that bring you even closer with certain boats at different times. Well, because obviously with um, uh, Scallywag, they had a bit of a pretty rough race, um, you know, with some tragedy as well with John Fisher and everything. Um, I'm assuming that on the water, you you know, you can communicate limited between boats. Um, it's nice to have somebody that you can kind of turn to or talk to that has an immediate empathy for what you might be going through. Yeah. And at that time of, you know, of loss, I, that was one of the hardest emails I sent, but I wanted to reach out to show the connection. And also I was amazed, but also not surprised that it had such an effect on our boat. When I had to share the news with my crew, I would say that next 24 hours, we were down on boat speed of just everybody taking that moment to reflect a little bit. And then that kind of, I think that's why Cape Horn was so emotional for me was that relief of successfully getting my team through the Southern Ocean. And we were in touch with everyone, line astern, round Cape Horn, all together, we could see everybody. So it was really good, but it was much more emotional than I thought it would be. And also many people go to round Cape Horn six times, but not many people achieve it. So I was pretty chuffed as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Southern Ocean then, because um, I want to get to what happens just after Cape Horn as well, because obviously it wasn't quite plain sailing after that. But... Um, you seem to have, uh, you know, you had a little bit more pressure on your shoulders than a lot of the other skippers. And mentioning no names and possibly getting in trouble with the office, I do know that there were some discussions from some of the boats about, look, this forecast is not good. And have you ever considered 
you know, dissolving the leg and we can all motor. I mean, there was a lot of nervousness in the fleet. It was a particularly um, bad set of winds that were going to come over. How did you decide how you were going to attack it from a performance point of view, but also from a an untested young team point of view? So the big realisation of what I'd actually taken on was in Cape Town. So you're about to leave into the Southern Ocean we're leaving on a forecast that is like near death. You know, the dark board is coming towards us. Six meter seas and it's all horrendous. And my guys are going into the Southern Ocean for the first time. So I'm sending them emails of how to, how to live in the Southern Ocean. You know, don't get wet socks. Make sure you've got a dry hat. You know, all these little things. And, you know, there's other skippers and other watch leaders on their boats discussing, you know, what do you do if you Chinese jibe and what do you do if this? I was like, oh, my God, I'm just talking about how to survive. You know, I'm not even talking about the sailing yet. So we had a really big decision when we first left Cape Town to make a strategic call on what the conditions we wanted to put our boat in with our sailors. And we chose a slightly different route to a lot of people. It didn't end up being as bad as it was predicted to be. And actually, we didn't fare badly from it. But there was a certain learning curve during that first Southern Nation leg of how to drive in those conditions, how to sustain the speed, not to have the kind of highs and lows, but more consistency. And by the time we left New Zealand into the second Southern Ocean leg, I had like a completely different crew. We were, we were up for it, you know, loving it. And actually, I had, we had the best leg. Uh, I loved it. I thought the conditions were really nice on that Southern Ocean leg from New Zealand to Brazil. Like we had a lot of fun. There was a lot of, I thought it was quite consistent. Yeah, it was windy, but it was great sailing. Um, and I genuinely love it down there. And I think because I come on deck going, woohoo, isn't this great? It has a knock on effect. And, you know, we were driving really well and it was much better. And it was tough. You know, if we were driving along a exclusion gate, crossing some red boats and everybody's on top of each other. You know, we had that emotional trauma with Scallywag. And then suddenly, oh, God, we're rounding Cape Horn and off we go. Um, so, you know, I, I made the decision, a, a seamanship decision when we left Cape Town of where we were going to go for our, our preference. And then we just sailed, but it was a big learning curve. But the next Southern Nation leg was great sailing and um, we had a lot of fun. And we just sailed it normally. We sailed it competitively and enjoyed it. Though I remember a lot of people talking about if you had to go into the Southern Ocean, who would you go with as a as a skipper and you know anecdotally a lot of people are like, oh you know I go with D you, you go with the person who kind of knows it inside and out and not only that but you go go with the person that, that would go well we could turn around and go you know and go home again you know I've got it in me um I have spent an awfully long time down there now it has to be said <laughs> too much is one way to put it um but knowing that a lot of people as you say would look to your emotional state to gauge whether they should feel scared or happy. Were you ever, did you ever find yourself sort of walking up the steps to about to come out on the deck? And did you ever have to sort of go, push that little bit down, turn that little bit up? Did you, how, how much did you have to tune your outlook? Well, it's quite funny because down below, it always sounds horrendous. And you think, oh my God, it must be horrendous out there. And you pull your gear on. And by the time you get out on deck, and you, when you're out on deck, you're like, oh, actually, this isn't so bad. So the noise can make it seem a lot worse. And you go out on deck and then you kind of, you know, have a little bit of banter, you warm up a little bit and, 
it's, I thought it was really important to actually experience what they were. You know, I wasn't a passenger on this boat. I needed to be sailing this boat. And that was a real concerted effort for me from the New Zealand to Brazil leg. And I remember one time we were doing a sail change or something was happening and Lucas had come back from the bow and he'd come back next to the wheel and he just looked over my shoulder and he was like, whoa, this massive like mountain of a wave was coming. I was like, oh, thanks for that, mate. I was like, right, concentrate. But um, yeah, I think they just saw that I genuinely enjoyed being down there and we were sailing well. Um, and it is kind of a happy place. I know that sounds a bit bizarre, but um, I, it does seem to be my happy place, which is a good job because, as we said, we've spent a long time down there. And, okay, so let, let's fast forward then. We come around um, the bottom of the Americas. We start going up. Um, one of the things that I find really fascinating talking to you, because you, you talk about it so candidly compared to with most of the skippers, is that responsibility of trying to manage the sailors' emotional states and trying to be that leader what was what was your fear when you start bouncing over waves and then your rig starts going a little bit floppy what did you have to sort of do then to kind of go okay there's some sensible decisions that need to be made well i was really lucky that liz was on deck um and liz just like took that on straight away me i was like okay it's still light that's the only reason we caught that if that had been dark we wouldn't have seen it as we were shaking out the reef we wouldn't have seen it, and then that would have been a whole different story. So in the back of my mind was it literally happened within hours of Vestas losing their rig. Yeah. And it was just like, there's only one spare rig available, and I bet they've made the phone call already. That was in the back of my mind. was like, to stay in this race, I need the rig, and I bet you they've already got it. And <laughs> allegedly, they were having a similar conversation of, if they've got a problem, we need to phone and get that rig now. <laughs> so it was quite funny that we should uh, be having that same thought process. But it was... Um, you know, part of me by then is we're in relatively safe water compared to where we've just been. So actually, it's never going to be as bad as you think. Yes, mm. it's still a little bit of a way to go, but it gets warmer, it gets easier. There's more options around. There's more boats around. And, you know, Liz did a great job by seeing it. It was great. And just having that confidence. We spoke to a lot of people and got a lot of support in the boatyard of how to make the adjustment. And it worked. So then the only thing in the back of your mind is having that confidence to push it. And you're like, do we put the sail up or not? It's like, well, let's wait till it's daylight just to make sure. And you've got that little bit of hesitancy that everyone had. Everyone was looking. It makes me think about the position reports, you know, the, the scheduled position reports that became a real feature of the race. Every six hours, this is where everyone is. This is what you've won. This is what you've lost. Would it be easier on you mentally to just leave sail, arrive and go, oh, that's how we did. Um, to a certain extent, for sure. But it takes it, it takes the focus away a little bit. Mm. Yes, you can sail your own race. And generally, all the boats have got the same routing with the same equipment. So you're going to go pretty much the same way, which we saw. But when the race is that close and you get those position reports, you know, it adds to the stress, it adds to the atmosphere, it must add to the content that we're sending back to everybody but yeah, got the stress levels. You could do without them sometimes. And I, you would think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to just sail and go, oh, how did we do at the end? But that's just not what it is. And you take it on. But it's um, it's hard work. And then you're like, why have they gone that way? And then you spend your next time quizzing <laughs> everybody else's decision, thinking, what have you missed? So yeah, it does add to the anxiety. And zooming out and taking a much uh, bigger picture, like you said, the result sheet does not show 
how much Turn the Tide on Plastic was in the fight. And also, as everybody got better, you guys kept in that fight. It wasn't as if you got kind of left behind. Um, would it have been easier if you your boat was just off the pace and then after the first one or two legs, your goals shift? Or, you know, was it torture to be so close so often? No, I think it. I'm much happier that we were in the race and just unsuccessful rather than following everyone around the world. We didn't want to be there as another boat as to make up the numbers. We didn't want to be there as the token female skipper or the token kids crew. You know, that wasn't what we were interested in. And we wanted to give as good as we could. And, and we did. And I think coming from SCA, where we did trail a lot of the time, and there were days between boats back then in that edition of the race. And to come to the race where there was minutes between the fleet finishing and we were in there, it was just like, oh, we're doing so well, but it's just not on paper. But I think that's why that final import race in The Hague, where everything hung on that, it felt like we'd won the whole thing on that day when we came in. And I feel that all the other teams felt like that too for us because they'd seen our frustration throughout the race. And, and I think there was a certain amount of sympathy for us by then. That's the performance point of view. What's it like getting to the end of the race from a skipper point of view and being able to take all that weight off your shoulders, but also look around and go, this is my crew and we've gone around the world. Yeah, that, that afternoon where you sit in your um, team base and you literally kind of look around at everybody. I mean, I was a bit of a proud mum, really. But you don't want to be that kind of, you know, fussing person because they're all like, yeah, well, where are we going then? <laughs> but literally it finishes so quick and it's almost like kind of ripped away from you and there's this massive void. And what you do is you realise how tired you are, which you didn't realise before because you're fueled by adrenaline. And that kind of hits you over the next couple of weeks. And you miss all these people that you've into. I mean, they're probably quite pleased to have a break from me, but you kind of get used to kind of coordinating this group of people. And then suddenly they're all over the world. You know, I had 10 nationalities on my boat. So they were literally in all corners of the globe within a few days. And it was like, oh, that's that then. But it, it stops really suddenly. And I'd spent a lot of time letting them know, you know, when this ends, it ends really quickly. So make sure you're thinking of what next. You've got a plan. Don't let it eat you up. Don't let it be a big void. And there I was being guilty of everything I'd said to them. And I was like, and I should know better. I um, I remember the end of the race. And I remember you very kindly actually invited me up to the team balcony. And I remember having, um, having a little chat with you and a sort of a, a chill out. And um, this is where I want to pivot back to women in the ocean race. And and I know that you might not like, that's not the only thing you're known for. Certainly it wasn't the only thing you were known for in the last edition. But I remember something that really struck with me with the conversation that we had at that point. You were adamant that it would be wrong for anybody to think we've done this edition with females on every boat and therefore the, you know, the job's done it's over. Is that still the way you think? Oh, for sure. I mean, we've come so far and the ocean race has been absolutely pivotal in making progress. But it literally, I think, as I said, in one of the press conferences towards the end, we've literally just opened the door. We haven't quite mm. stepped through into the next room and we're just not there. It won't happen organically yet. We're, we're slowly changing people's perceptions. We're slowly getting 
the men experience with sailing with women and realizing it's not so bad, but it's just not a natural choice yet. And I think the fact that the ocean race is committed to mixed crews on all their boats, be it whichever fleet, I think is massive. And I think they realized that they couldn't just, oh, we've done it now, it will happen. They realized they need to still continue to lead the way to help everybody else facilitate change in its path. I think you have to lead by example at these pinnacle events and that helps grassroots come through. And I think there's a lot being done in our sport to help that, but it's, you know, change is slow. People are reluctant and it, it takes some key people. And I, you know, I take it as my responsibility as a female sailor in the industry to help keep that change and that momentum going and to be a voice to make it easier for the girls coming through in the future. What advice then would you give to somebody? I mean, I, I got a question on this. It was somebody that was 22 years of age, I can sail. I want to really, really, really get into it. As somebody that did um, take the non-typical route, what advice if somebody's got the hunger, hasn't yet got the route through? I think it's, um, and you do kind of need to be bigger and better than everybody else in order to kind of cement your place and do a good job. What you don't want is to be the token. You don't want to be a tick box. You don't want to be a favor to somebody. You want to be there on your merit. So, you know, if you're physically fit, you need to make sure you really are physically fit. If you are skilled at something, make sure you are skilled at that. You know, you can't fake it. You've got to really deliver so that there's no comeback. And then people are like, oh, this is really good. Be super nice about it be super friendly be pleasant to have on board you know it's all those soft skills as well that people remember and sell with everybody sell with as many boats and as many people as you can because you never know who's connected to who and where it leads and i think we sometimes get a bit too caught up in i have to sail on a big boat or i have to sail with that person or i have to sail fast you just need to go sailing and if you do enough of it and you do a good job of it people will talk about you and your name will be passed on. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. For you, for, um, I mean, I'm, I, I know you're going to carry on sailing. I mean, I know that you were sailing just the other week. Um, but um, for the ocean race, would that come across your radar again? And if it did, is Skipper the only role that you would take on? Or could you see yourself fitting into a crew? I genuinely love the race. I love everything about it and what it does. And I love that all absorbing 10 months of your life that you give it everything and you walk away completely void of any energy or emotion at the end of it. Um, and I would love to be part of a crew. What's almost really bad is I'm almost associated with, oh, well, you'll do your own project or you'll obviously lead a team. And actually, I feel I've missed out. All those girls that got to sail on the other boats sailed with super experienced people and learned from some of the best sailors that are out there that have got huge amounts of experience. And, you know, I was kind of having to do that for my guys. And it was like, I would love to be in that position and learn from others. I'm very easygoing. I'm very happy to do what I'm told. I'm very happy to have my job. And how lovely would it be to go around the world with no responsibility but make a boat go fast? It'd be quite nice. You know, I'm not against um, leadership and responsibility at all, and I do enjoy it. And I learned a lot about myself again on Turn the Tide on Plastic, and you always learn from your mistakes, and you know you can do bigger and better. But, you know, I don't have an ego that has to see me at the top of the tree at all. You know, I, I'm 
I'm happy to mop bilges the same as everybody else. You know, even on my crew, I wouldn't ever ask them to do anything I wasn't prepared to do myself. And that goes for any boat that I'm put on. So, yeah, don't write me off, anybody. <laughs> would, the, would the younger D. Kafari that crossed the finish line on um, Aviva sailing the first female solo, you know, the wrong way around the world, um, and then you get on that call, then you get to do the... Um, the uh, the import race with um, uh, ABM one. Does that young Dikavari would she would she have seen as far as you've got now? Would she have gone? Oh, and I will be skipper, and I will do this, and I will do the ocean, and I will do that. You know, does does um, you know how how much would it be worth going back to that person and saying you're going to achieve a lot more than maybe you think. Uh, yeah, I would. I didn't have a clue back then. I remember being on this boat and being absolutely transfixed with Mike Sanderson on how he controlled his crew and had complete kind of concentration and focus from them. He said the right things at the right time, and I was just like, wow. And they, like, I remember seeing Sydney Gavinay just running around the boat doing everything while everyone else was doing their jobs, and I was just like, this is just amazing. And I had no concept then that I would, in a few years' time, be that person on that boat with a crew with it looking slick, or maybe not quite as slick, <laughs> uh, you know, looking for the right things to say. I was not as cool as Moose was. But, yeah, no, I had no idea then. So wouldn't it have been lovely to have had, you know, had that knowledge then to uh, know where I was going to go? But that's, that's life, isn't it? It's full of unexpected twists and turns and opportunities, and the big decision is which opportunities to grab. Well, Dee, thank you very much. Um, I know you have just come off a bit of offshore sailing, so I'll let you get your rest. But uh, thank you very much for giving us an insight as to, uh, yeah, what makes you tick. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Niall.